friends, and welcome to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and as ever, we are here to brighten your days, anger your souls, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy, I find myself in an interesting spot trying to enter into this douchebag buffer because on the one okay. hand, on the one hand, there's a part of me that wants to ask you about something that you just watched, which is the first few episodes of the new Sandman series sure, on Netflix. Sure. On the other hand, you and I passed a lovely morning together. We had breakfast, and we watched the first episode of the new Beavis and Butthead show that is on Paramount Plus. Sure, and I, I we were thinking along the exact same lines here. What I'll say, just because we've talked about Neil Gaiman and his love in the past, The Sandman on Netflix. I've seen the first three episodes, and it is perfect it is amazing it is getting rave reviews it is looking like one of the best netflix shows in a good long while it is everything their live action cowboy bebop was not and i think that's about all i want to (laughs) say go watch the sandman on netflix this thing deserves five seasons okay it's brilliant it's wonderful gaiman has learned how to become a perfect showrunner i fully endorse it Four thumbs, way up. Now on to Beavis and Butthead. Yes. Which we've both seen and I think can talk a little bit more on. So, yeah, just to paint the picture for people, we were scrolling YouTube just looking for something to watch as we ate a breakfast. And the first episode of the Beavis and Butthead Paramount Plus reboot, or I don't even know if you'd call it a reboot, but continuation, I don't know, was free on YouTube. And you turned to me and was like, you want to give this five minutes? And if it sucks, we know then. And I was like, yeah, sure. And we wound up watching the whole thing. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because, okay, so Beavis and Butthead is a show that is not remembered very fondly by most. No. It was considered very stupid, very lowbrow, very dumb compared to other Mike Judge projects like King of the Hill, like Idiocracy, like Office Space. It is maybe considered the least of them, despite the fact that it is probably the one that made him the most money? Sure, and I would go as far as to say it can't be the least of them because people remember it. I know there are at least two Mike Judge cartoons that came out after King of the Hill that nobody remembers. You know what? That's fair. That That is a very good point there. I, I was fine with Beavis and Butthead. Like... I did not in any way watch it on the regular. Yeah. But, you know, I occasionally would come across it and, and it'd be fine. Not it, I would watch their little music video segments. I'd see random episodes. I've seen the movie a couple of times. Apparently there's a new movie. And this show felt very much the exact same vibe Although, I don't know, I felt, and I said this to you, I'm like, is this a little bit smarter? Yeah, and and probably it is a little bit better written, a little bit like people trust Mike Judge to do better, and Mike Judge has had 30 years to improve as a comedic writer. But the show feels exactly the same. They change nothing other than reset it in a contemporary 2022 landscape like the the episode we watched the first bit is them going into an an escape room and then the second is just this nonsensical thing where beavis 
I'm assuming hallucinates, but maybe not, has a conversation with a living embodiment of fire who tries to get him to be, like, a better person. And it's very dumb. It's very silly. Like, in the escape room episode, they walk into the bathroom and they just assume that this must be the escape room because they're complete idiots. But it's not new voices. It's not... Oh, we're gonna try and do a storyline. It's not they're, they're, in as much as Beavis and Butthead was a complete lowbrow, like you could live your whole life without watching a second of it offering. It wasn't broke. Yeah. And so they're not fixing it. Yeah. And it's just like, okay, let's just put these characters into this context. And at the end of the day, they still kind of work as just ageless idiots right because their entire personality is they are stupid and crude and mean and that is timeless that is they they, they could serve as commedia dell'art archetype characters well and you know what this actually this gives me an interesting thought on the or this makes me think of the concept of the I don't want to use sketch-based um, writing, but, like, the that type of TV show, specifically cartoons, where you'd watch a 21-minute, you know, 21 minutes of it, there'd yeah. be commercial breaks, and each of the things would be a contained... There'd be two main bits and maybe some interstitial bits. Sure. But it's a bit. The characters do not change. There is not... Uh, other than maybe the occasional, well, there was the one time that you did this. There's no reference to previous events. It's, I mean, it's the same conceit behind, like, Looney Tunes. Yeah, I mean, and, and just as you're talking, I'm sitting here being like, Ed, Ed, and Eddie, Two Stupid Dogs, Ren and Stimpy. Thank you, Coffee Machine. <laughs> he has a name. Thank you, Arthur. Thank you. It's a joke for two people. Indeed. Um, but yeah, like, I think this works when it is a very simplistic character. Yeah. Because the lack of character development is kind of part of the point. Yeah. But yeah, I totally see what you're saying. Well, the point of it is the bits. Yeah. The point is, okay, you you can give the elevator pitch if you're familiar with the characters of Beavis and Butthead. They go into an escape room. Yeah, I, I can. I feel like I can see the writers' room here. Someone basically like, all right, Beavis and Butthead. Let's get some ideas for like new and updated things. And someone is like, TikTok. Okay, that might be able to replace the music videos, and they do. Um, I could see them being like brunch because brunch was a thing that existed in the '90s, but I feel like brunch culture is a new thing. Sure. And someone probably said escape rooms because escape rooms feel very contemporary, and they went, okay, escape rooms. How can we fuck with escape rooms? And there's so much, like, there to work with. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you you imagine Beavis and Butthead. Like, I'm sitting here going, okay, Beavis and Butthead are going to go into an escape room and just destroy the place because they don't get it. And it goes, it actually surprises me because they end up just walking into, like, they confuse when the person tells them to go down the hall and to the left. And they're like, they say left, right, right. And they go right and they walk into a men's room and they're like, oh, 
this escape room looks like a bathroom. Right. And then it's just them wandering around a bathroom trying to figure out what the clues are. And it just escalates from there. And the whole purpose of it is you're just watching them, like, interpreting someone who wrote Jason Eats Balls on the side of the bathroom stall is like, this must be a clue. It's supposed to be a mummy's tomb. Is it the mummy's balls? Right, and so that actually might be the thing is back when he was probably writing in his basement for MTV and this was like the thing that got Mike Judge discovered, he probably didn't have much of a writer's room. If he did, it was him and a couple of his buddies. I know the famous thing is Mike Judge basically made Beavis and Butthead by himself in the like original television show. So the idea that like now he has probably a bunch of people who like have worked on South Park and shit and who like pitched on Rick and Morty and, and that does create a more clever offering while it still manages to have the Beavis and Butthead voice. Like the only reason they get out of there is they wind up flooding a toilet and the manager of the escape room like runs in, doesn't see them and they go, Oh, the door's open. We won. Yeah. And then try to take a shit in the actual escape room, escape room. And they're like, Oh, this bathroom looks so weird. (laughs) Exactly. And it's funny. Yeah. No, it, it works. It works. So I, I think like, what I said to you as I, I turned to you and I was like, I don't know if I need to watch this. Because, yeah. again, I don't know if anyone needs to watch Beavis and Butthead in any context. <laughs> but the show seems to be in good hands. This seems like as, as much as any reboot or Hey Kids Remember This TV show can be, this one seems to at least earn itself we both laughed a couple of times genuinely yeah like it it legitimately i i don't feel the need to watch it i didn't feel the need to watch it before i'm sure that clips of it will come up on youtube or tiktok and i'm like all right that's okay yeah i'll i'll i you know i think maybe the reason it came up on youtube was because I was scrolling TikTok this morning and I saw a Beavis and Butthead like reboot clip where they're watching a BTS video. Ah. And I'm like, okay, all right. I and and Beavis is like really into BTS and Butthead's like, what's wrong with you? And he's like, oh no, I was I was being uh, what's you know I was being uh, iconic. <laughs> and it's yeah, it's. And I sat there and I and I watched this like one minute thing on TikTok and went, okay, that's that seems like a good use for these characters. Well, thank you, algorithm. That is especially hilarious to me, considering it was your TikTok and my YouTube account. It all is talking yeah. to each other. <laughs> exactly. Speaking of talking to each other, welcome to Love Hate Relationship. Um, every episode we start by talking to each other about whatever is on our minds that particular day. Comparative analysis between Sandman and Beavis and Butthead. And it it is a shame that we talked more about Beavis and Butthead. I, I cannot repeat enough. The Sandman is amazing. It deserves all your viewing dollars. It is well documented my issues with Netflix. And Neil Gaiman deserves all your goddamn money. Watch all of his shows. 
<laughs> uh, but after talking to each other for a little bit, we start in and our topics are typically something that one of us loves, something that one of us hates, and then we take a question from either you, our lovely audience, or the internet at large. And this time, Andy, I have the love. You have the love, and there have been no notes. <laughs> Yes, there are no notes because we. I, I was not necessarily expecting to record this episode. I picked a topic and just went, nah, you know what, I can riff. So if this is bad, blame me. And this won't be bad, hush. Throw stones when you see me in the streets. Hey, Andy. Hey, Alex. <laughs> so, very simple introduction, and this is very similar to a topic we have already done that you had actually brought the love for. Indeed. But this one is my version. So, Andy, I want you to tell me, just, you know, you can, and you can be as specific or as broad as you want, but please tell me your experiences and your associations with the distilled spirit that is whiskey. Come guess me this riddle, what beats pipe and fiddle, what's hotter than mustard and milder than cream? What best wets your whistle, what's clearer than crystal, sweeter than honey and stronger than steam? Sure. Okay. Um, so growing up, my dad was never a very big drinker. With the exception of he would enjoy an occasional scotch. And I can recall he, he did the thing of going up to four-year-old Andy and going, hey, take a sip of this. And then when I make a face laughing about how, oh, this four-year-old can't handle his scotch. <laughs> uh... So all that to say, I don't think I had whiskey until like shitty high school parties. Like, I'm sure um, we've got a mutual friend who had his own apartment in high school, and the thing would be, let's go over to his house and spend the night and drink and be debaucherous and be stupid high schoolers. And I'm sure at some point I was handed my first cup of Jack Daniels and, like, my first Jack and Coke, probably, mm -hmm. um, and, and went off from there. Um, and, I mean, whiskey is, like maybe the most popular of the fine liquors. I, I, I question that statement even as I say it, because I, I think about vodka and I think about rum, but like whiskey is the biker drink. Whiskey is the, I'm a tough guy and I'm going to drink this one straight drink. I've taken numerous whiskey shots. I've developed a taste for peanut butter whiskey, which... I, what? Would every, yeah, that is the reaction I get anytime I tell somebody, oh, I'd really love you if you got me a bottle of peanut butter whiskey as a gift. And, like... It's disgusting, Andrew. We We have talked ad nauseum about how my drink is rum. Yes. And I will grab a bottle of rum ten times out of ten before I grab a bottle of whiskey, but... With that said, I have time and a deep appreciation for the darker, malted variant of alcohol. Hmm. I appreciate that. Can I just ask, have you gotten at all more into whiskey after, like, moving here and hanging out with me more often? You know, no, I wouldn't say more. I... 
for for people who don't know, Alex and Stephanie have a bar cart in their apartment, and it is a thing where like there is always at minimum two bottles of whiskey, one Irish, one not, on that bar cart. I have a deep appreciation for Irish Irish whiskey. I think I like it more than American whiskey, but I wouldn't necessarily say I've gotten more into it. Okay. All right. Fair enough. I just see you drinking mine when you come over, and that's totally cool, and I completely support you. <laughs> yes, indeed. Half the time, it's because that's what you guys offer me. No, and you know what? That's fair. We, we, we now stock a little more rum. Indeed. Not exclusively for you, but largely for you. For me and for Mariah, when Mariah wants, like, a more tropical beverage. Something something along those lines. I appreciate that. Um, I appreciate you reaching back to our um, debaucherous high school days. Uh, and I appreciate your kind of statement there. God, I can't believe your dad gave you scotch when you were four and just laughed at I mean, it was probably only once, and it was just like, here, have a sip of this. He did the same thing with, like, a giant stein of German beer. Mm. I think that's just a white dad thing of, I'm going to give my kid alcohol and then laugh because they clearly don't like the alcohol. In fairness, I had the experience of, like, the Colombian uncle who gave me a shot of something at 13 at, like, a New Year's party, and I still to this day don't know what it was. (laughs) Nice. So, you know, what are you going to do? For today's episode, for this episode, I want to talk about my favorite of the distilled spirits, whiskey. Okay. So, as you you alluded a little bit to it, you mentioned that, um, you know, it's one of the more malted uh, of your kind of liquors. That's not necessarily the case, and I'll get into my definitions. Okay. But... Historically speaking, um, the earliest forms of whiskey date all the way back to second millennium BCE. There is evidence for the earliest of the distilled grain alcohols dating back to the Babylonians in Mesopotamia. Okay. We don't generally think Mesopotamia, which is like modern day Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Iran area when it comes to this. But... We don't, but cradle of civilization and whatnot. Yeah. And basically, the way that we understand it now, whiskey as we understand it now, really kind of came to be in its current form around the 15th century when it made its way to Ireland and Scotland. (laughs) Sure. And this is a liquor that is so central to both the cultures and the economies of those places, I think something like 80% of Scottish exports are whiskey. I believe that. And you know what? Good on them because scotch is fucking delicious. And and so right off the bat, the one thing I've never understood that maybe you can answer for me, what is the difference between whiskey and scotch? Ah, so scotch is a type of whiskey. Okay. So let, let, let's, this actually segues me perfectly into what I need to kind of communicate as far as what whiskey technically is. So it is a fermented grain mash. The way that you get whiskey is by essentially taking water and grains of certain varieties, typically a mixture of bar- barley, corn, rye, and or wheat, um, 
You'll essentially mix that with water, mash it up, and ferment it. Okay. And it is typically aged in wooden casks, which are usually made of a charred white oak. Sometimes you'll use other things. Sometimes uh, it's very common to use um, barrels that have already been used for distilling sherry, for instance. That is super common in, like, the Ireland, Scotland, England area. Okay. But that is that is your baseline there. Now, as far as the different types of whiskey, you might get something like... Let me use American whiskeys to kind of create this conceit here. So a bourbon, for example, is a whiskey that is made from a mash that is at least 51% corn. If you've ever had bourbon versus, say, an Irish, mm-hmm. you'll note that bourbon tends to be harsher. It is a harder whiskey to drink. Sure. And that is because of the corn. The more corn there is in a whiskey, the more you're going to get that kind of burny, really hard, like that really hard stinging feeling. And that is characteristic of bourbon. 97% of the world's bourbon is literally just made in Kentucky. Some people will tell you that a bourbon needs to be from... I'm getting whiskey snobbish right now. Some people will tell you that a bourbon needs to be from Kentucky. It does not. Oh, it's not the Champagne region of France? No, it is not. To be a bourbon, it just has to be 51% or more corn. Okay. Now, there is such a thing as a corn whiskey, which is 80% corn. I have never had a corn whiskey. It doesn't sound good. It's It sounds like burning. <laughs> yeah. But corn whiskey is a type of bourbon because it is more than 50% corn. And bourbons are a type of whiskey. Okay. If this makes sense. Sure. Scotch, if I understand correctly, is... Um, yeah, I want to double check myself here. But I'm pretty sure there is nothing with scotch... Chemically speaking, yeah. So there is nothing chemically with scotch that makes it scotch. It has to be from Scotland. Whiskey from Scotland is a scotch. Now, the most popular types of whiskey from Scotland, and the one that they've kind of perfected, tends to be malted scotch, made from malted grains. You do not need malted grains to have a whiskey, but... You've heard of single malt scotch. That is the most common that you'll get. That one is Champagne region of France. Okay. It's got to be from Scotland to be considered. I can't make scotch in my bathroom right now. I could make bourbon. (laughs) Jesus. Okay. Now, to me, this, does it also have to have a stag's head on the bottle? Because I've never, ever seen a bottle of scotch that did not have that. I've seen many a bottle of scotch that did not have that. (laughs) But I appreciate where you are coming from. Similarly, you might get, like, a rye whiskey, which, as you may guess, is 51% rye. Mm. That is another type of very common American whiskey. There are variations of whiskeys from all over the world. France does it. Um, Georgia, the country does it. Denmark does it. I was going to say, after, like, Scotland, Ireland, America, the the thing I've heard the most, and I've actually kind of heard it with more reverence than even American whiskey, is Japanese whiskey. Japanese whiskey is an interesting creature because it... 
its recognition around the world has been fairly recent. They produce both single single malt and blended whiskeys. Mm. Blended whiskeys being mixtures of different types of whiskeys, much like you get a blended wine. Yeah. Um, it's really kind of grown in the last probably 15 years or so as far as being kind of an international export there. Okay. I've had a few Japanese whiskeys, and I, I enjoy them. I absolutely do. They've been making it there through, I think, most of the 20th century, but it didn't really start getting exported until around 2000. Yeah, it feels like a relatively new but prestigious aspect of the culture. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it is solid. You have heard me rant at length about my, um, my disrespect for Canadian whiskey. Sure. And I'm going to be honest. The biggest issues I have with Canadian whiskeys are, number one, I think Crown Royal is trash. I find Crown Royal to be an exceedingly bland flavor. Interesting. Okay. And I really think, I think Crown Royal is the Grey Goose of whiskeys. Do you know the story behind Grey Goose Vodka? It was bottom shelf until it got prominent for being the thing that rappers would buy because it was the cheapest one. And then that its own hype turned it into a top shelf vodka. You're almost there. Okay. Do you know why it started getting... It wasn't because rappers started getting into it. Rappers kind of picked it up as it was starting to get that reputation. Do you know what made Grey Goose Vodka incredibly popular? No. They gave it a cork and started marketing it as though the cork made it a better whiskey. They gave it a cork (gasps) and raised the price and then started marketing it as top shelf. Respect, Grey Goose. It is Grey Goose is one of the greatest grifts in in the entire Western world as far as commerce is concerned. Okay. To me, Crown Royal is the Grey Goose of this. Because it's, they put it in a bag? It's a beautiful bottle. It is I will say this: Crown Royal has one of the most beautiful bottles that I have ever seen. It is marketed really really brilliantly because it is marketed in this way that is it's marketed in a way where it's not the what gray goose is doing where they're like we want this to be exclusive we want this to be top shelf this is what you get at bottle service you could get it at bottle service but its price point is such that you're spending more than you will for let's just say jack daniels Mm. which is a tennessee sour mash never call it a bourbon This is this is important. Sure. Um, so it's it's more expensive than like a Jack Daniels. It's more you know it's it's kind of up there with like your Maker's Mark, which is a solid Kentucky. Con- Maker's Mark is in the Canadian. No, Maker's Mark is Kentucky. I must be thinking a Canadian club. My bad. You're good. I'm not mad at you, <laughs> but it's like up there with Maker's Mark. Which, Maker's Mark is a solid, like, bottom of the top shelf. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not, it's, 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 it, you can get it anywhere. You can go into basically, I can walk into TGI Fridays and ask for, you know, a glass of Maker's Mark. Mm-hmm. It's going to be expensive. 
but I can get it anywhere. Okay. Basically, it's it's far from well. Crown Royal has basically marketed itself in that vein. The bag. The bag is fucking useless. Yeah. It does nothing for it. I've seen more people take that bag and throw their D&D dice into it. That is the joke, yes. And that is pure... Crown Royal is great marketing for a meh product. Okay. Now, have I had good Canadian whiskeys? Yeah. There was, I don't even remember what it was called, but there was a Canadian rye that I tried some years ago that I really, really enjoyed. I don't like that they put caramel and syrup in so many of their fucking whiskeys. Well, it's Canadian. You, you open up a Canadian's vein and a little bit of syrup's going to come out. It's disgusting, <laughs> Andrew. You know what? I'm not mad if you're going to put some, like, caramel notes in the wood that you are distilling it in. Uh-huh. That's a normal thing. You know, put you know, you put you might get cinnamon. Some people will take the barrels before they put the whiskey in and they'll soak them in like cinnamon water to get a cinnamon flavor. That is good. You put cinnamon in the already distilled and and like packaged whiskey, you get something disgusting like Fireball. I was about to say, this is the part where I bring up Fireball, the single most popular college alcohol known to mankind. I have gotten so destroyed drinking Fireball at college parties. And part of that is because we would play this game called Cario Mart, where the thing is you couldn't finish a lap in Mario Kart until you had finished your drink. But nonetheless, Fireball was a staple. While we're at it, one of the most, one of the best and worst nights of my life is when me, Mariah, and two of our friends killed a bottle of Crown Royal Vanilla Disgusting. and played Resident Evil Seven. <laughs> so to each their own. Jesus fucking Christ! Oh my God, I'm horrified. <laughs> I know it's a scary game, but I'm. I hate you. <laughs> so, there are multiple different varietals for whiskey, and there's a lot of room to play with there. Sure. My favorite, and the one that you already stated, is always, there's always one of these on my bar cart, is a good Irish whiskey. Mm-hmm. Now, Irish whiskey, unlike scotch, is not limited to, like, to be an Irish whiskey, it does technically just have to be made in Ireland. However... Ireland takes its whiskeys very seriously. You're probably not surprised by this. No, not at all. The uh, only thing they drink more is tea. Yeah. Eh, even then. Eh. Yeah. Um, but Irish whiskey, like, okay, you've, you've tasted various kinds of whiskey, and you say that Irish is one that you will actually drink without much issue. Tell me what it is about Irish whiskey that sits well with you. Irish whiskey, the thing is, you taste it and you know it's Irish. Mm-hmm. There is a tang. There is a a slight sourness that you don't necessarily get with, ironically, a sour mash like Jack Daniels. There is something... I know the, the liquid itself, I think, tends to be a little lighter in color. Mm-hmm. There's a reason um, for that. But it is just... you. You know it is Irish, and Irish tastes like no other kind of whiskey. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah, I don't have issue with whiskey in general. It's my problem. Liquor is tequila, but I will absolutely go for a bottle of Jameson before I go for a bottle of Jack. Fair enough. So the reason why Irish whiskey is is lighter in color, and the reason it is so smooth—that's the like okay. defining characteristic with a lot of Irish whiskeys—is that it is typically distilled three times. This does not. Some people. Some people have actually argued. I've heard it argued that that makes it more alcoholic, and I've heard it argued that it makes it less alcoholic. Sure. Neither of those are true. <laughs> you get your alcohol in a whiskey from the fermentation. It has already been fermented after it's been distilled once. Okay. You do not. You do not add or subtract alcohol by distilling it further. What you do is remove a lot of the stuff that makes the whiskey taste harsh. It gets purer. So, Irish whiskey, and and again, it's not a requirement for it to be distilled three times. Um, It's also typically made with a malt. It's it's actually typically made with an unpeated malt. Um, However, there are exceptions to all of this. That said, that, that taste that you are imagining, that is a triple distilled unpeated malt whiskey that is what jameson is that is what your off the off the shelf jameson is and i can drink this shit like water at this point oh, sure. like you have sat with me as i have killed half a bottle in an evening and then just like walked been... a straight line yeah no i'm good <laughs> it, it's nothing to me anymore um but no that is that is I would argue that is where you, you could you could drink just Irish whiskey for your entire life and be in a very, very good place. My favorite whiskey in the entire world is an Irish called Michael Collins, mm. which I believe is no longer made. Right. There is, I think, a warehouse in Chicago that has a stock of them that you can buy and they are crazy expensive and they'll be shipped to you. I think I I think Stephanie got me a bottle for my birthday a number of years ago. And I like I was like Charlie and the chocolate factory, like taking my taking my chocolate bar and eating the tiniest bits of it uh-huh. and so that it lasted me the year with this with this fucking whiskey. I, I recall this. You you were that maybe the happiest I've ever seen you. The most stunned and surprised at this bottle. But that actually leads me into maybe my final question. Is there any logic to the named whiskeys? And the thing of it is, so in my mind, there is a hierarchy. And I want to know if there's anything to this or if I am just being presumptive but it feels like it goes michael collins johnny walker uh, jack daniels jim bean and at the bottom is the lowly evan williams which is ironically my wife's favorite brand of whiskey uh all of those are just named after people okay like jack daniel died like i think a hunt like I don't know when Jack Daniel died, actually. I toured his fucking distillery forever ago. He died long enough that I remember a commercial that was talking about Jack Daniel had seven wives or seven horses or something. Jack Daniel died in 1911. Okay. Jack Daniel was the distiller who founded Jack Daniel's Whiskey, which is still located in Lynchburg, Tennessee. 
Um, it's actually a real fun tour, the Jack Daniels Distillery. It's it's a lot of fun. I got to put my face in a vat of sour mash being being like mixed up. It was horrifying. Like unwashed. No, like I didn't. I didn't dip my head into the liquid. Well, that's what I, it sounds like. No, the vat is like the vat has like a like ten feet of open air above it. Gosh. So I got to smell the sour mash. Okay, that sounds horrifying. It, you know what it was, but like it was also cool, and and you know, fun fact: Lynchburg, Tennessee, uh, is a town with a population of I believe like five hundred. Um, it really is built around this distillery, and they create one hundred percent of the world's Jack Daniels in that distillery. They ship it all over the world. It is it it is the whiskey that was made famous by Frank Sinatra and David Lee Roth, and Lemmy from Motorhead. Because it's where the whis- the Jack was. Yeah, but um, but yeah, like all of those, and, and I and I I'm pretty sure the Jack that the Jack Daniels brand has since been bought and sold to like I think it's under some large corporation. I don't know that for a fact, but I believe that's the case. Evan Williams, same thing. Like, all of these are just owned by conglomerates at this point. Mm -hmm. As far as, like, is there any, you know, anything to the convention behind, like, how they rank? Really, it just kind of... I'd say Jack Daniels at this point is on par with, like, your Jim Beams. Evan Williams is considered, like, a little bit cheaper. But even underneath that, there are well liquors. You ever had Kentucky Gentleman? No. Kentucky Gentleman is for people who are too broke for Jim Beam. Okay. It tastes like the undersole of a miner's boot. <laughs> and it will fuck you up. I'm sure, yeah, I was about to say, I'm sure that appeals to a very specific kind of person. But you know what? I am someone who, like, I don't like to take my nice bourbons, my nice maker's marks and all of that, and mix them with stuff. If I'm going to mix... I'm going to mix with Kentucky Gentleman, or I'm going to mix with Evan Williams, or something along those lines. That's how I kind of treat that, because I like to drink my whiskey. You've seen me. I like to drink it straight. Yeah. Maybe with a little ice. There is there is a convention that if you're going to drink whiskey, it helps to put just a little bit of water. Um, Nick, my best friend... Um, someone you have known for many, many years, the convention he would often have is to order a whiskey and a water and he'd take the straw for the water and put like one or two strawfuls <laughs> of water in his whiskey. Brilliant. And that would be all that it would need. Okay. And that was how that was how we drank for many a year. Sure, sure. Um, but yeah, like that's that exists there. Michael Collins was, I mean, it was a distillery in Ireland that just small batched. Gotcha. Jack Daniels is a whole fucking factory at this point, and they're shipping all over the world. Michael Collins was a small operation. It's like anything else. You've got your kind of boutique, smaller brand, harder to find stuff, and then you've got your mass-produced stuff. And it's not that one is better or worse than the other. I've had Irish whiskeys that I would, like, there's a bottle of patties on my bar cart right now, which is a very, like, I honestly, I got it because it's an Irish whiskey that was on sale. It's fine. It's behind the secrets. Mm. Um, it's fine. But if I had the option of Jack Daniels or patties, I'm going to get the Jack Daniels. Sure. Because the Jack Daniels, to me, 
is a better whiskey than the patties. It really just comes down to your taste. I like cheap shit and I like expensive shit. You say that I always have two whiskeys, and the fact is, I always have one cheap whiskey and one nice whiskey. I have a fucking decanter for my nice whiskeys. <laughs> you do. It's it, beautiful. Yeah, it currently, I think, has um, like the last bit of a bottle of Maker's Mark in it. But that, And, and when that's done, I have a scotch that I'm going to pour into it and decant. For me, and this is how I'm going to wrap up, for me, whiskey is... You know I don't get precious about a lot of things. You know that I don't get in... I, I get insipid about, like, nine things, and I'm real insipid about them. And whiskey is one of them. Sure. It's something I have been drinking since well before I should be should have been drinking. It's something that, at this point, my... Like, I'm just very used to metabolizing it. So it's, it's, it is the drink that I can go to a party and, like, sit and sip that the entire evening and be totally fine the next... I, don't, I haven't had a whiskey hangover since I was probably in my early 20s. Like, I, it, just, it just does not do that to me. I love that you've built up a tolerance. <laughs> But also I built up a taste. Sure. It's something that I actually like I, I, I have never I've never believed in sommeliers. I, I I have read the studies where they have basically taken white wines, dyed them red, given them to professional sommeliers, and they couldn't tell the fucking difference. Mm. And I'm sitting here going, like, yeah, no, that that makes absolute sense to me. I don't think there's such a thing as a whiskey sommelier. I'm sure that they market themselves as such, but I don't think there's any more science to that. But I do believe there is something to the taste of it. It is something that I have sat with and learned about and invested my time and my attention and my care into. And I have seen people do this with, I've seen people do this with meats. Yeah, people, sure. People who are very into different, understanding different cuts of meats. I have seen people do, I've seen people do this with wines and, and be very, very mindful about like, what exact wines they are drinking. I've seen people do this with baked goods. Like they are bakers or they use particular ingredients. This is, and and to me, a lot of that, I'm like, if that makes you happy, cool. I drink boxed wine, motherfucker. Like I will, I, I love when I have an artisanally baked cupcake. I will also happily eat the prepackaged public shit. Whiskey, I will drink the cheap shit. But I'm gonna know what I'm drinking. It's it's the thing that I have invested myself into in a really meaningful way, and that is maybe the biggest reason I love it. Could I have could I have possibly done this with tequila had I fixated on that when I was in high school and just killing bottles when I shouldn't have been? Yeah, probably. <laughs> but I didn't fixate on vodka. I fixated on whiskey, and I have continued to. I don't consider it a hobby, but I do consider it something that I care about it is it is a part of you i i don't mean this disrespectfully but your love of whiskey is a aspect of your personality it's who you are i've looked over my shoulder here at a framed puzzle of like whiskeys of the world that i know you and your wife spent time making and then it meant so much that you then framed the puzzle you are a capital W whiskey guy, and I think that's great. And I will happily raise a glass, be it of whiskey or rum, or if we're ready to have a bad night tequila with you anytime.
Let's let's avoid tequila. Let's. <laughs> you want to hate on some shit? Yeah, let's talk about something that makes me want to drink. Alex, we've talked about streaming services enough that I feel like it's its own subgenre topic. In the same way that we talk about music and movies and alcohols, we, we've talked enough about the streaming content, the streaming platforms of today that I feel like we can talk about this. And I want to ask you, would you agree when I say, by and large, you and I share the opinion that HBO Max as it is today, has turned into one of the best streaming platforms around. I would argue the only one at this stage today, August the 6th, that like possibly competes with it in terms of like the breadth of awesome shit that's on it is maybe Disney+. Plus. Mm-hmm. And that is a maybe because HBO Max has... A bunch of shit that I honestly, like, Disney Plus has a dearth of newer content that I appreciate on the level that I appreciate both the old and the new of HBO Max. That's how I'm going to characterize that. Okay. Fair enough. And and I appreciate that opinion. And I'm sorry to tell you, get ready to just completely throw all that out the window It is becoming a thing of yesteryear. HBO Max, by all intents and purposes and forecasts, is about to go massively downhill. Which is why today my hate is on the HBO Max Discovery merger. I didn't know what Discovery Plus was until you talked to me about this. So I'm... I'm here to have you deep dive this shit and instruct both me and our audience. And I'm, I'm happy to do so, especially because I think unless you are plugged into the of-the-moment modern media, not even in the sense of TV shows, but media in the sense of, like, companies that moderate TV shows, landscape, you might not know at all what's going on. So I'm happy to deep dive into this and then... Just, just for the listeners to know, I started like writing expansive notes, and about halfway through, I just kind of started writing the rest in my head. So there <laughs> is a moment where this is going to get very stream of consciousness, but hopefully it doesn't seem too jarring. However, to start, to begin, we have Warner Media, as in the Warner Brothers, as in the WB which has owned HBO and is like the company behind HBO Max, which Mm -hmm. is a modern streaming platform that is like skyrocketed in in prominence over the past three years or so. Indeed. In April 2022, WarnerMedia merged with Discovery, as in the Discovery Channel, as in the thing you would watch as a kid and it would show nature documentaries and like, Shit about ancient cultures and a lot of reality TV and owns the streaming service Discovery Plus, which is exactly all that crap. It is it is the streaming network that a lot of like daytime reality TV goes on and a lot of like documentary docuseries nonfiction programming goes on. The two companies, Warner Media and Discovery, merged creating a new company known as Warner Brothers Discovery. 
The effects of this merger are now being felt with the very first blow coming just a few days ago with the announcement of a inexplicable cancellation of a Batgirl movie that for those of you who don't know was like in production. It was starring Leslie Grace, who is a, a Dominican pop star and also anyone who has seen In the Heights on Ironically, I want to say Disney Plus. Yes, um, I believe she was Nina. She was one. She was one of the two female leads in In the Heights, and that yep. is like her big movie role that people know her from. She was set to play Barbara Gordon, and this was going to be a movie that saw J.K. Simmons come back as Commissioner Gordon, that saw Michael Keaton come back as Bruce Wayne. We have production stills. We have information that Brendan Fraser was going to play Firefly as the villain. We knew... Oh, I, I thought he was coming back as his Doom Patrol character. No, he was going to be Firefly. Oh, shit. I say was because this movie is dead in the water. And, like, the internet, at least the part of it I'm, in like, deeply nested in, began losing its mind trying to understand, well, why? What's going on? This movie was filmed. This movie was in the middle of the editing process. This movie was set to come out like in three months or something. And instead, it is just straight up, nope, it's canceled. We're done with it. We're not going to work on it a second more. The project is dead. And people are immediately suspicious of this um, and, and in a uproar, rightly so, because it's weird to cancel any superhero property movie in the year of our Tony Stark 2022. <laughs> Tell me there aren't people who would like say that unironically. Year of our watcher. In, yeah, exactly. The year of our, our Thanos, the year of our Kang 2022. Jesus Christ. Um, it is it is weird to cancel any superhero movie right now when superhero fiction is at like its zenith, its peak. But namely to pick one that has a lead actress who is a female person of color, directed by two people of color, with a prominent trans actor as a trans character, it's it's a little sus to have this be the first thing that gets canceled. Mm -hmm. And so Warner Discovery went, oh, no, 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 it's okay. We're also canceling some Scooby-Doo sequel that I didn't even know was coming out. And we're going to quietly start taking a bunch of our movies off of HBO Max. Um, the main ones I noticed were a movie called Moonshot, which starred Lana Condor. The Witches remake that starred Anne Hathaway. And announcements of cancellations of the shows Raised by Wolves, Made for Love, starring Kristen Malati, The Time Traveler's Wife, Close Enough, and Little Ellen. Which I'm okay with Ellen DeGeneres getting a program canceled. But... I'll be honest, I've only heard of maybe three of those projects, four of those projects. Raised by Wolves was big in the sci-fi community because it was Ridley Scott's return to, like, doing science fiction. Okay. Um, the Time Traveler's Wife was just, like, brand new. They, they had made a TV show about the movie, about the book. Um, but the, the thing is, just any of these shows, people are asking, why? What's going on? Why are we losing this content? Why are we killing two movies that have already been filmed and just need to be edited and re uh, released? And the answer came out, tax credit. 
because Warner Brothers Discovery is technically a new company from Warner Media, it is allowed to cancel unfinished products and get its money back, which in the case of Batgirl is up to the sum of $85 million in tax credit. Mm-hmm. And if you were sitting there, listeners, going, well, that seems like a weird reason to cancel a show or a movie. Yeah, you'd be right. That is a really, like, short-sighted, greedy, we-only-care-about-our-bottom-line way of looking at it. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, the Batgirl movie was supposed to be streaming only, yes? Yes, it was going to be streaming only on HBO Max. Okay. How the fuck were they going to make their money on that movie anyway? I mean, the same way that presumably they make their money on any HBO Max original film through promotional stuff and through whatever the agreement is between streaming services and content creation uh, distribution companies anyway. But yeah, I, I, I kind of see the point you're leading at here. Like, I, I feel... This is not me trying to justify them. This is me sitting here because I'm, I imagine there are projects that are in production that they haven't canceled. Yes, I'm going to get to that in a moment. Go okay, on. but uh, uh, so I'm sitting here like, okay, with streaming, it's always been kind of nebulous how you make money from that. The most explicit discussion of it that I've ever seen has been Netflix's. Netflix famously, we talked about this in the past, cancels typically cancels their shows after three seasons the reason being that they have more or less figured out that beyond the third season you are not likely to get new subscribers for that particular show you will get people in the first like one two and even into the third season going like you know what i just i had to get it because i had to watch this show i keep hearing about it like it's it's a thing but you don't see that actually like playing into the fourth and fifth seasons. That said, there are occasional shows that do make it that far, that do make it farther in there. Sure. Intriguingly, most of the ones that I think of are either... No, actually, I think all of them are shows headed up by great white men. Yes, we're going to get into that too. Yeah. But when it comes to movies, I've never cons- I've I've never understood how you get movies to be profitable if they're streaming only just because okay, you're spending whatever it is just on production. Let's let's even just lowball it because I'm pretty sure this would be the lowball 85 million dollars what they get back in their tax credits. Well, and so how, the- are you, how do you make 85 million dollars in new signups? And, and yeah, exactly. In theory, the way I've always understood it, I, this isn't something I'm reading off the page, but this is how I've always understood it. The entity, the streaming platform, the Netflix, the Hulu, the Disney Plus, the HBO Max. You sound like a grandparent. Like Indeed. You're in there on the on on the on the Netflix on there. The Netflix, right? And you're like playing Fortnite. Anyway, that sucks up all of the money from subscribers, right? From subscribers, from marketing deals, from all the ways that a TV entity can make money, period. Merchandising being a factor. Exactly. And uses that giant pool of money to do all the things it's supposed to do, like pay for new projects, like 
justify the cost of an $85 million superhero movie, like pay its actors, which also recently found out, um, turns out streaming does not give residuals in the same way that network TV reruns do. Mm -hmm. So like, it's one of the actresses from Euphoria did an interview where they were like, yeah, I can't afford to stop making money. I'm not, I'm not seeing a dime from Euphoria because you're watching it on HBO Max. Mm. But in theory, it is supposed to take all of the money and, and use that to do the things, you know, it's, and so that is why you, you talk about Netflix realizing that there is a level in which you are not making more money for any given show that isn't Stranger Things. And at that point, you need to cut the cord and start on a new project, which might excite somebody to then re-up their Netflix subscription. And it becomes this just this brutal little cycle. Regardless, I, I would argue and I would make a case that like, I don't know what we're doing if we're not spending the money that we have to make new projects. Like, apparently the budget for Batgirl was $70 million. So if we're getting an $85 million tax credit, okay, that's a net profit of $15 million. Basically, they are gambling and saying that we do not expect this film to make $15 million in profit at least, or whatever the triple, but uh, the, the 21, $210 million to go by standard, it has to triple its budget to make an actual profit mindset. And that sticks in my craw the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And that sticks in the craw of a lot of creative minded types craw the wrong way. And that kind of gets to the core of my issue here. This is a film that David Zaslav, the new CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, sat there and went, I don't think this is going to make enough money and therefore it doesn't deserve to exist. And boiling it down to, well, is it going to make me a shit ton of money? Is a horrible, capitalistic-minded, cruel way to be looking at does this project deserve to exist? This is a film that was going to have Batgirl be played by a Dominican woman. This is a film that children of color, regardless of gender, were going to be able to watch on TV and, and feel represented in some way or just feel like, oh my God, it's, it, this, this is somebody who looks like me, whether or not they're necessarily Latin American. This is somebody who isn't white. This was, uh, I'm going to say their names because it's important, directed by um, the uh, the directing team of Bilal Falal and Adil El Arbi, who um, are getting some prominence. Apparently they directed one of the best episodes of Miss Marvel. Um, you know, by the names, you can kind of assert these are not white dudes. Mm-hmm. Um they were at Adil Arby's wedding in Morocco when they found out that their film had gotten canceled. Nobody told them ahead of time, which is just bad practice anyway. Yeah. This is a project that not white people 
might have actually really fallen in behind and supported. Like, I could say right up front, I, I have nieces of color. And superhero media is a tricky thing for girls of color. Sure. It's a tricky thing for girls in general, but especially for girls of color. And the idea that I could have, like, my my niece knows that I love Batman. My other niece is, you know, a newborn, but she will know that I love Batman. And there is something to the notion that I could have maybe shown them something. Yeah. That could have reflected back at them. There's a suggestion that if this had reverberations, the comics are not uh, often will follow the media. And if we ended up with, you know, in the next fucking DC rebooted universe, having a Batgirl of color, I mean, that would have meant something. That would that would have meant something. So that is like why I mourn Batgirl specifically. Other shows that are on the chopping block and nobody nobody has heard yet what is going to happen are Flag Beam's Death, which is like the queer fiction of twenty two of, of twenty twenty two, and is like it, it, it's a gay pirate show, but it's the most amazing gay pirate show there has ever been, and had amazing non-binary representation, had amazing representation of people of color from all across the spectrum, and people are already worried that it wasn't going to get a season two, and now there's even more fuel in that fire. Well, it was critically huge. It was critically huge. It would be a massive. Um, mistake not to back the project unless you're a homophobic straight white dude which spoilers david zaslav ceo of wb discovery totally is big trumper our flag means death gossip girl which is a predominantly like female driven show from my understanding pretty little liars original sin same story hacks which is one of my favorite shows out of the past year it's this amazing comedy starring gene smart and hannah einbinder and has great representation across the board nobody knows it's been announced they're getting a season three but that was before this news warrior which i know is a um, predominantly asian asian actor starring thing Titans, Doom Patrol, Harley Quinn, Peacemaker, the Penguin spinoff, the Arkham spinoff, Minx, Rap Shit, which is an Issa Rae project, Tokyo Vice, The Sex Lives of College Girls, and The Flight Attendant. What do these things all have in common? They are not, except for Peacemaker, I don't think any of these shows you would necessarily say is like a straight white male demographic. No, some of them are white, but female. Some of them are people of color, but male. Exactly. Meanwhile, the shows that have been confirmed are quote unquote safe involve Succession, House of the Dragon, True Detective, Barry, The Righteous Gemstones, Euphoria, which does have very good representation, but is also maybe the biggest new show of the past two years. Hmm. So it's almost unkillable. And just all of the things that bug me about this are the idea that HBO Max was the streaming service where you could reliably find 
weird, interesting, new shit that you weren't going to find anywhere else. I've talked a lot about how Hulu has kind of turned itself into the queer championing streaming service. And it's owned by Disney. And it's owned by Disney. So there's going to be like uh, uh, some pressure from the overheads no matter what. Disney is the biggest one of these because it's two services. They're both like top tier. Right. HBO Max, you could find new and original interesting shows. You could find... I, I watched several shows like um, there's one. I, I watched several shows that were only like six episodes long and were only one season, but were interesting stories and different ideas and didn't have the wide market appeal. But that was why I was watching them in the first place was because it wasn't the same old, same old you were finding on the other streaming services. And basically, there uh, at time of recording a few days ago, there was this marketing call that was anybody could listen to, and it was about the WB Discovery merger. David Zaslav, who I only know his name because of this call, went on and did like this Zoom PowerPoint presentation talking about all the good things that are come going to come out of this. And it all boiled down to, I'm going to sum up this thing very succinctly. David Zaslav wants to be a Kevin Feige, Bob Iger, or whoever the hell is running Disney right now. He wants to be that level of person. He wants to have the biggest, most internet breaking, most financially profitable entertainment property in town. And if he doesn't have that, then he has no time for the project. David Zaslav broke down a lot of things. Mainly, he said that he was really proud that both HBO, that the HBO Max and Discovery Plus tandem had accumulated 193 Emmy nominations in the past year. And people were very quick to go, well, yes, because HBO Max got 140 of them. And this is the one that you're mainly taking an axe to the content of. He was very quick to make this very sexist assertion that mostly people, uh, the mostly the people watching HBO Max were men who cared about fandoms, who had like a, a interest in theatrical skew. Meanwhile, Discovery Plus is mostly being watched by women who want to watch the Property Brothers and 90 Day Fiance and quote-unquote lean-back entertainment. This is a, a slide that everybody on Twitter is ripping this guy apart for, making a very sexist assertion on who watches what streaming service. Um, he talked about wanting to make a new 10-year plan for DC in order to follow the Marvel model. This is the third time that a corporate entity has said, we're going to redo DC and we're going to make it like Marvel. And it keeps not working because they keep not giving it enough time to. Well, and arguably the best that the best that the DC movies have ever worked was when they didn't follow the Marvel model. Right. And they did legitimately just go, all right, you know what? 
let's just do standalones. And let's, you know, some people can be cast as the same character again. Some probably won't be. It's fine. We can have three Commissioner Gordons. We can have four different Batmans. We can have two or three or five different Supermans. And you know what? At the end of the day, who really cares as long as the individual movie is good? Yeah. And the thing is, that worked. Yeah, it certainly did. But each of these films as a whole is not the unstoppable media entity that Marvel has become. And I think this guy personally is upset that his yacht isn't as big as his buddies who own DC and CBS and and is upset about this. A direct quote from the call is that the upside of this move is that there's even more room for dot, 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 cost savings. David Zaslav is not an entertainer. David Zaslav is not a director, a producer. He is not a Kevin Feige. He is the CEO of a multimedia conglomerate. So he doesn't give a fuck what the art is. He only cares that the art is so amazing that it is getting him and his shareholders more money. Yeah. He doesn't care if it's good. He cares if it's successful. Exactly. Feige. Feige is a business person. We will. We should never, never forget that. No. But Feige is also a fucking dork. And while he has missed on things... He legitimately does care about these movies and this media being good. Right. He, and, he, and he tries to make that happen. Yeah, absolutely. This guy doesn't seem like he would necessarily be the best judge of what even is good. No, apparently in his call, he also, he, he specifically shouted out the TV shows House of the Dragon, Ted Lasso, and Abbott Elementary as content that, quote unquote, really resonates with people. And a core thing there is two of those are comedies and House of the Dragon isn't out yet. House of the Dragon is the Game of Thrones spin-off show that premieres later this year and he's already he's basically saying we miss having Game of Thrones. Yeah. We miss having Game of Thrones because Game of Thrones was fucking successful. Game of Thrones sold HBO subscriptions. Game of Thrones was central to culture. Here's the thing. Euphoria captured a lot of attention. Succession has captured a lot of attention. These are legit. I would call these water cooler shows. Yes. As much as water coolers exist now. Absolutely. But they are not what Game of Thrones at its peak was, where Game of Thrones was a cornerstone of what, for a while, was considered the golden era of television. I don't think we're in the golden era of television anymore. But it was considered a cornerstone of that, and it was a cultural event. And he's really hoping that, A, if he ignores how much that audience turned on the show because of the last two seasons he can and b if he just keeps pushing forward with this particular universe 
that he can recapture that same level of cultural lightning in a bottle. And the thing is, I don't know if House of the Dragon is going to be any good. I know it's not going to be as successful as Game of Thrones was, no matter how much he seems to hope. And the thing about business people who are not themselves artistic is that they always look and go, well, what worked before? Right. And the thing is, in, their analysis of what worked before is not, okay, we took a really unique, successful, um, genre-breaking book series, fantasy book series, and adapted it with not perfect... Not like not not perfectly emulating everything in the books. We are making changes, but we adapted it pretty faithfully with a really well-picked cast, really solid writers, and and cinematic level um, crew and production team. They don't see that. They see Game of Thrones. They see Song of House and Fire or whatever it was. Yeah. Song of Ice and Fire. Yes. They see, okay, this property worked. So let's do more of this property. Yeah. Rather than seeing what about the property and that moment and that show and that production were what worked. If they took another really incredible, like super interesting, groundbreaking sci-fi or fantasy series and wanted to give it the Game of Thrones treatment and put that much resources and creative power and hired really good people to do it, like, they almost got there with Westworld. Right. Yeah. I got I got two things I want to say and then I'll wrap up. The first is I, I reiterate, I think that in and of itself is a flawed premise. David Zaslav is basically saying, I want to have Stranger Things and the MCU and I want both of those like revenue streams going directly to me. And I don't give a shit how many new voices, how many queer voices, how many women of color, how many women in general I have to stomp on to make sure that I get these revenue streams coming to me. And he made a big point in his press release about hiring the best people regardless of anything else, which is fairly obvious code for I am not going to do affirmative action because I can say that the six white directors I just hired are just the best people. And why wouldn't I hire the best people? It is so the, the core of my hate is this idea of media is only good as long as it financially justifies itself. That is so fucked and I hate the capitalistic system that we work under where art is not allowed to just exist for the sake of telling a new story. My final point, and I have not seen this anywhere. This is, this is my take that I've been um, cooking up. I feel like we are entering into a new Hollywood studio system. And, mm. and to elaborate, almost 100 years ago now... Hollywood was being born and we got MGM and Universal and Paramount. And these were 
filmmaking conglomerates who made movies and had a pool of actors that they personally had the contracts for and controlled every aspect of. They also owned the theaters back then. They also owned the theaters back then. And obviously we're not having a one-for-one thing here, but it really feels like we are moving into a a new studio system where it is the name brand. It is Disney and Warner Brothers and CBS who are divvying up everything. And instead of actors, it's services and properties and have a level of control over actors through franchisement, through Chris Evans playing Captain America in eight different movies and therefore basically being under Disney for eight different movies. Now, he could go make other shit, but like Disney knew they could control him. I feel like we are just returning to this form under a wider umbrella. Mm. And the studio system died for a fucking reason. And so this is bad and this is a dearth of creativity and this is... A lot of shows, and more importantly, shows made by people who don't look like me, mm-hmm. which, unlike David Zaslav, I appreciate. Yeah. On the chopping block, jobs will be lost. Creatives won't be able to get to tell their story. This is bad, and it sucks, and I wanted to talk about it. I appreciate that. I'm, I'm going to say this. It doesn't just come down to capitalism. It comes down to where capitalism... There is this myth among capitalists that capitalism is a pure system. And the thing is, and that the only thing that can sully it is non-capitalist economic thoughts, Mm. is government intervention, is market manipulation, is, is all of this shit. And there's an inherent flaw in that because it does not take into account the very narrow, limited perspective of the powerful, like David Zaslav. Case in point, you could say, oh, well, we're going to cut all of these shows and focus on Succession and Righteous Gemstones and House of the Dragon, and I'm going to hire these white directors because they're the best. And you turn off a very capitalist concept of untapped markets. Sure. This conceit that, like, oh, no, women are only watching these 90-day fiancé property brothers bullshitty kind of things. And who's and, – and, and, you know, it's, it's who's spending the money. And it's this idea that, like, we need to homogenize this thing to a white male standard and that will make us all of the money. Whereas we have seen time and again, if you diversify your product and you chase these other markets, these untapped, underserved markets, they will flock to you and they will absolutely be profitable. Yeah. And someone with this perspective, this like single-minded market view is incapable of seeing that because capitalism is not a pure system. It is absolutely affected by things like privilege, by money, by race, by gender, by heteronormativity. And it makes business people in the creative space uniquely blind. 
that needs calling out and that needs understanding. You say that we might be entering into a new studio system. I'm inclined to agree, except now they own the theaters and the theaters are places that we're paying monthly subscriptions to to access in our fucking homes. Yeah. And I do not know what that will look like. I, I think what I'm waiting for is the first director or actor to sign a Disney exclusive contract or a Warner exclusive contract. Sure. That is, because that is, that will be our sign that we are fully back in a studio system. And the thing is, I don't think there's anything that will really stop anyone from doing that. All you need is someone who is financially willing to do that. Chris Evans will happily work for Disney. He voiced the fucking Lightyear movie. Yeah. But Chris Evans also wants to do other stuff. Chris Evans wanted to be in Knives Out, and he wanted to be in Snowpiercer, and he wanted to do these other random projects. And you know what? Good on him. So it's not going to be Chris Evans. It's going to be someone who honestly probably wasn't unknown until they got cast in i'm just going to stick with disney sure until they got cast in this disney movie in this um in this remake of an old disney classic or this marvel film or this star wars film and they become huge because of that and disney latches onto them because culture latches onto them pedro pascal might have done this had he not been interested in doing weird shit and he is interested in doing weird shit yeah. Um, but someone who gets to that level of prominence like Pedro Pascal from The Mandalorian and Disney goes, I, we got this contract that'll keep you playing this character for the next 10 years. We've got these two other projects that we think you will be great for. One of them is this reboot of an iconic character and one is this other brand new project. You sign this, you'll be on, you'll be our exclusive for the next this many years. We'll also let you do smaller roles in these other properties that we have. Guess what? We've got a rom-com coming up and we need someone to play like the character's dad. Exactly. Like, so you're going to be, in, you'll be working plenty. You'll make tons of money. You'll get creative input on these characters. They'll, they'll, they'll do something like that because Disney is good at that. Disney yeah. is good at letting their actors have a certain amount of creative input. They're like, you'll get to do all these things, and you're just going to be our Disney contract person for the next 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. Yeah. I'm waiting for that contract, and it might be a director who does it. Same, same basic concept. But that will happen, and at that point, we will be fully in a new studio system. Because once that domino drops, a thousand others will drop and it won't be everybody you're still gonna have your chris evans who are like i really just still want to be i want to be able to do an a24 film yeah you're gonna still have that but it's going to that 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 tide will shift once that domino falls so go watch hacks go watch our flags mean death if if there was a movie on HBO Max that you were waiting to watch and it seemed kind of weird and it was, it was like very specifically appealed to you. Go check if it's even still there. And if it is, watch it. And just, uh, I don't know, this isn't a life-changing, world-ending thing, but it's it's shitty just to be have to tell listeners, have a little bit of like social education of where your media is coming from and how it might go away like that. Yeah. 
With that, that. On that note, uh, I read the format. Would you like to read our question? You found it anyway. I will, yeah. And this comes from relationships.txt. Um, and I was very interested to have this question. I, a 25-year-old woman, have no idea how to have sex. Quite the title. I'm 25 and still a virgin. I was a late bloomer. I got my first kiss at 19 and never had a relationship because of my extremely high standards. Despite all that, my parents were never the strict type. In fact, they've always been really liberal, leaving most decisions up to me from a young age, as long as I was safe. Anyways, they never had the talk with me, and when they brought up the relationship topic, it was always a joke, usually because of my high standards. My mom has asked me many times if I was gay, I'm bisexual, but she doesn't know it. But never asked if I had a boyfriend, whether I was feeling sad because of a boy. I, I never told her the reason. I'd just make, make something else up. My psychologist constantly suggests that I take the initiative to get close to my mom, but it frightens me to the bone to talk to these topics with her. Anyways, even though I'm still a virgin, I have a libido, right? And I go out with guys sometimes, and whenever we get to the point where I know he's probably going to want to have sex with me, I start avoiding it. I know all contraceptive methods and stuff about safe sex, but how do I go about this without my parents knowing? I don't want to take pills because I'm aware of the side effects, but I don't know. I'd like to get an IUD, but how will I buy that and get the medical appointment without her knowledge since she always asks me everything about my life and I don't know how to lie? I have had a hard enough time lying to her when I go out on dates because I'm embarrassed of it. It's not like she would freak out or keep me from going. It's just that it's embarrassing, you know? Am I being silly? I don't know. It's just overwhelming. I know that sex isn't that much of a big deal, but it involves a lot of big deals, mainly health stuff, and definitely I do not want to get pregnant or have an STD. I guess the best people to help me out in this case would be parents of people my age. LOL. Whew. So this makes me think of Carrie. We've already done Carrie. Yeah, we have, haven't we? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. like, Because the mom's supportive. Yeah. But it's just like a weird situation. What? And it. Hmm. What were. Okay, did you ever see Blockers? I wanted to, but no. Uh, so the main conceit of Blockers is that there are these three high school girls who decide that they want to lose their virginity on prom night and they're parents find out and are all varying like one of them is a like i don't know if she's divorced or widowed but she has kind of a weird parasocial relationship with her daughter one of them is an overprotective dad sure. and the other one is an underprotective dad who is going along with it because he's like i just want to like be there for my kid and i just want to like not have these idiots fuck things up for her yeah and it's it's Actually, really, really well done. But I'm wondering if there's maybe something in there. I don't know if you have another thought. No, I think there's something in there for sure. I, I'm trying to think of like characters in media with overprotective mommy issues. Well, it's underprotective parents, but the kid is just awkward. Right. Sure. So I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily coming up with anybody off the top of my head you know what you know what 
This is a Tina Belcher. Oh my god. <laughs> so this is so oh my god, and Linda would be all up in Tina's business. And super supportive, but like wanting to know everything. Alright, so we've got I'm here for it. We've got Tina Belcher. Oh dear. Alright. So, you read, I can get us started. And the thing that I'm gonna say to you, Tina, off the bat, because um, I, I like to always answer the question. And the question here is basically like, are you being silly? And how do you do this stuff without your mom finding out? And I'm gonna be clear. No, you are not silly for having these concerns about sex. Like, there, there is a... We like to think of ourselves as a sex-positive show. Sure. sex-positive people. Yeah. And there is a dark side to a lot of sex-positive thinking, which is basically, well, it's weird if you're on the other side of it. If you're someone who... Maybe is a late bloomer. You're not asexual. You stayed up front that you have a libido. You have an interest in sex. And it just hasn't worked out for you the way that you wanted to. There's no shame in being 25 years old and not having had sex. I am not going to use the term virgin. Because virgin, virginity as a concept is fucked and stupid. And I would caution you against using it. Because it comes laced with a lot of moralistic overtones and undertones that frankly are not healthy sure you're just a 25 year old who hasn't had sex yet and the thing is that's okay there's no shame in that it is looked at with derision and culture but it is your experience and that's valid and you want to change that and that is cool there's nothing wrong with that either as far as your mom is being concerned you are being a little silly there because you don't have to tell your mom shit you don't have to lie you can just say, hey, I want to be private. I want to have a private life. I do not feel comfortable, mother, talking to you about my relationship right now or my relationship status or my sexual status. That is not comfortable for me. I am not okay with that. There is nothing wrong with that. Even if your mom is supportive and liberal and interested, you do not have to entertain that. You are, you are entitled to your privacy. If your mom cannot respect that, you need to set a boundary there that there will be consequences to that. Ergo, if your mom does not respect you having privacy, you can cut your mom out of other parts of your communication. And you that is your perfect right. So that is how you handle your mom. Set a boundary and insist on your privacy. It is not lying. It is just saying, I don't want to talk to you about that. There's things that you might not. It, I, I'm assuming, Tina, that you have a job. Maybe you work in the restaurant. Maybe you don't. <laughs> Are you going to talk about everything in your personal life with your coworkers? No, because there are boundaries there. It is okay to not talk about certain things with certain people. You have a psychologist. Your psychologist should be a safe person for you to talk to about damn near anything. If they are not, get a different psychologist. Yeah. And we've talked at length here about how sometimes you have to change psychologists and change counselors before you land on a good one. Totally valid. But 
insist on your privacy. As far as how do you get an IUD and how do you like get through all of that stuff, you have the internet. You can figure out everything you need as far as getting an IUD. How do you do it without your mom finding out? If you live with your mom, that might be hard, but you can insist on your privacy. You can say something like, okay, mom, I need to go do a medical thing. I don't feel comfortable telling you about it, but I'm going to be home and I'm going to be recovering for a couple of days. Uh, get a different ride, get a friend, get somebody else to give you to do the actual driving and just be like, sorry, this is my privacy. Deal with it. I'm going to be in bed for a couple of days. Yeah. And the crucial thing I keep coming back to is there isn't any real, there's nothing in the question that, that says, I know my mom is going to be upset. There is conversation of fear within Tina to even bring it up and broach it. And I agree with everything you're saying, but the other thing I would communicate to Tina is it sounds like this is a personal growth thing that Tina needs to go under to engage in conversation with mom. First of all, about the privacy, but also the other way you could approach it is to say, hey, I need you to know I am terrified of talking about blank with you. I get massive anxiety at the thought of having to communicate these personal aspects of my life and romantic issues with you. And you haven't necessarily done anything, but nonetheless, I am terrified. I think the first thing is to open up with that because it either gives Linda a chance to start figuring out how they can be more supportive and less hands-on, or it the, the response is negative, and then it, it gives Tina emotional motivation to say like, okay, no, you're being a dick about this. You're justifying why I was wrong to be you're justifying why I was right to be worried to talk about this with you. And that leads immediately into the conversation of consequences to one's parent. Yeah. Um, it does, there, there is nothing about the living situation Tina's under. Um, I, I would assume Tina is still living with mom, which there's no shame in. But it definitely does make things more complicated. I think you provide a really good idea of what to do with just like you. You are 25. For the past seven years, you have been legally able to go and do this thing. So you can get another ride. You, If money is an issue, maybe you can save up. Um, I will say, like, there's a reason. Like, condoms are not the best form of contraception. But they are very effective when used correctly and they are cheap so you know if an iud is not in your cards right now if you don't have insurance if you don't have the ability to get that learn how to use condoms yeah and learn more than what they teach you in fucking health class indeed it, it seems like truly i i was interested in this question because first it seems like it's a sex question then it seems like it is a a maternal issue question I think at the core, this is a relationship question between Tina and Tina. 
between Tina's desire and Tina's anxiety. Yeah. And this is a personal growth thing of taking baby steps to get out from under that anxiety. Hopefully they go well, and then it's a little easier to set healthy boundaries and be able to enjoy whatever you want to enjoy in life without being worried that you're going to have to give your mother excessive detail that you don't want to give. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think that I think that's astute that so much of this is your relationship to yourself, Tina. The thing I will say is this, where your mom is concerned, decide on how much privacy you need and how much communication you want to have with her. You can outstretch a hand the way Andy is suggesting, or you can close that door from the beginning. And both of those are completely your right. Yeah. And where it comes to the sex itself, you start avoiding it. You say you know about all the things, but when you talk about your concerns, you wonder about how to do it without your parents knowing. You actually mentioned your parents a couple of times, not just your mother. True. So you do not need to share shit with your parents. Or if you do want to share shit with your parents, you know, that that can be a thing that you face down. But it sounds like you're going to kind of half-ass both things if you're trying to go for them at the same time. If you want to pursue sexual activities, if you want to pursue some kind of sexual experiences, you can. You shouldn't need to worry about your parents at the time. You just take the measures to do so safely and intelligently. You don't mention a single other human being that you know. Are your parents the only people that you know? If they are, that's going to make this more complicated. There is mention of dates. There is, but you don't have community it sounds like True. if you have friends that you can rely on, again, you can go on dates, you can get rides to the place to get the IUD, you can buy condoms, you can do all of this stuff, and you can pursue dates. You should you should be trying to pursue the sexual experience and the sexual life that you want. And at 25, the only thing you should need to say to your parents is if you're living with them, just be like, Yo, don't wait up for me. And that should be, you sh- You deserve to have your privacy there. So really, I, I don't like to do the like, yo, just um, suck it up and deal with it kind of answer. But that kind of might be the case here. So we wish Tina the absolute best in that conversation with their parents. Uh, and want to say, if you, dear listeners, have a relationship question, be it with a potentially overbearing parent, be it with a romantic partner that you don't necessarily know how to take the next step with, be it with yourself. Maybe it's a relationship question that you think involves something and we'll turn around and tell you, I think you need to work on you in this one. We are happy to take those questions and we will take and we will take all those questions at lovehaterelationshippodcast at gmail.com where we promise we'll read them. That's right. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Uh, you can also rate and or review us on any and or all of those platforms. We're told it helps people find the show, I guess. Uh, you can also follow us and send your questions on Twitter at LHRPod, that's L-H-R-P-O-D, and 
we will very much be uh, keeping up with this HBO Max drama over there, as well as, I don't know, maybe I'll tweet about whiskeys I like, who's to say? That sounds like a great idea. Uh, we talked about Beavis and Butthead, and whenever I talk about Beavis and Butthead, I think about the time that I watched Beavis and Butthead do America on my other uh, podcast, Cult Fiction, with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson. You can find Cult Fiction everywhere Alex said you can find Love Hate Relationship. You can find me, Andy Boel, on Twitter at JovoCop2113 or at Andy's underscore minis if you want to see what Warhammer stuff I'm painting. That's right. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, as well as chess.com and live chess at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z. Thanks for listening, y'all. As ever, please tell your enemies. Bye.